Jeremiah chapter seven, beginning in verse one, it says the word of the the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless and the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold. You trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. Some Bible teachers call this Jeremiah's sermon at the gate or Jeremiah's temple sermon. And like I said, it begins here in chapter 7, verse 1, continues in chapter 8 and chapter 9, and then in chapter 10, all the way to verse 25. The sermon was given in one of the most trying times in all the history of Judea and Jerusalem. It was difficult times, um, vicious times, violent times. The Assyrian power in the north had been greatly reduced under the new power Babylon. The Egyptians had just defeated Israel's army. They had just killed King Josiah. Josiah's son Jehoiaz had ascended his father's throne only to be replaced 90 days later by Jehoiakim, an inexperienced and evil ruler. Jehoiakim had sworn allegiance and loyalty to Egypt and then introduced pro-Egyptian policies. And so in the south, they were looking to Egypt to be their salvation, their protector. And in the north, Babylon was waiting to pounce in. The people said that they believed in God. The people in Judea and Jerusalem, if you asked them, they would have said, sure, we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Sure, we worship the Lord in the temple. They were observant to religious rituals, but their hearts were far away from God. And so the people didn't really 
observe the law of Moses. They didn't really observe the commandments in this sense. They would say the prayers. They would go to the worship service. But fundamentally, nothing was really different about them. When the temple feast days came around, the Sabbath came around, they would attend the service. They would offer the sacrifice. They would ask God to forgive them. They would ask God to bless them. But when they left the service... Their lives were fundamentally not changed. Their hearts were the same. Their families were the same. Their activities were the same. And so, the people were by and large convinced that going to church, praying and offering sacrifices didn't really matter. It was religion. It was a religious ritual that you did what you did, but by and large... They didn't care as long as they continued to honor God by praying, as long as they continued to honor God by giving, as long as they continued to honor God by going to the temple, as long as they continued to honor God by offering sacrifices that they should be fine. But once again, the message is one of rebuke and warning and exhortation. The message is addressed to those in Judah who hold to the outward religious forms, rituals, but they've abandoned true biblical faith. They participate in religious services. But in their hearts, They don't long for God. They don't love Him. They're not walking with Him. And so, the message is centered on those who have deceived themselves into thinking that they have a right relationship with God because of a superstitious loyalty to the outward forms of religion, but they don't really have a true biblical faith. And for every one of you who grew up in a religious tradition and you knew what it was like to grow up in a religious tradition where in your religious tradition you go to church, you may have even had a Bible, you may have even had prayers, you might have had candles, you might have had incense, and you thought that those religious traditions were enough To keep God at bay so that in the event of a crisis, you would have at least some currency with God. Jeremiah warns those who deceive themselves in verses 1 through 7 by believing the false teachings of the false prophets who promise safety because of the presence of the temple. Jeremiah points out the fact that God was willing to destroy the tabernacle at Shiloh later on in the chapter because of the wickedness of the people and the rebellion of the people. And so Jeremiah will broadly talk about self-deception in verses 1 through 15 that leads to self-destruction in verses 16 through chapter 8 all the way way to verse 17 later Jeremiah will be ordered by God to cease praying for these people in verse 16 and so in a scathing sermon Jeremiah points out superstitious religion leads to superstitious worship superstitious religion that leads to superstitious worship has no value 
in verses 1 through 15. Prayers that do no good in verses 16 through 20. Sacrifices that fail to cleanse in verses 21 through 26. Discipline and direction from God that result in no change from verse 27 all the way to chapter 8 verse 3. And so in the next several chapters, Jeremiah will expose false worship in the temple, false prophets and the law, false confidence in God's covenant. And as you can imagine, do you think the people met the message with, we love this guy. We love, we love the way that he preaches. We love the fact that he's exposing our sin and reminding us that judgment is coming. And I'm going to subscribe to his podcast and I'm going to log on to his website every single Sunday. No. The message was unwelcome. They weren't ready to hear that superstitious religion has no value and that God doesn't really care unless you've experienced true heartfelt repentance, change in mind and heart, a willing to really trust and obey the Lord. The prayer has no value apart from repentance and obedience. Offering sacrifices has no value apart from repentance and obedience. That God's discipline and correction, it doesn't even have any value apart from repentance and obedience. It's like spanking your child. Well, I'm disciplining my child, but there is no change. There's no change. And so it begins with false worship in God's temple. Look again in verse one. It says the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. The word you'll notice is singular because the emphasis is on the communique. It is on the message from God and that this isn't. Jeremiah's analysis of the political and the social and the theological circumstances of the country, that this is God speaking and that that word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And remember, as we've studied the book of Jeremiah, remember, remember, remember what the Lord has spoken to Jeremiah. And he said, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell the people what I say. That's your job. Your job is to simply say what I need you to say. And so the Lord speaks in verse 2. Look what it says. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, that's the temple, and proclaim there this word, that's this message, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Now, remember, Jewish men were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate the feasts of the Lord. We learn that in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16. And as you can imagine, the religious circumstances were such that they would go to the temple to observe the feasts. But they did very much like the way people go to church because that's their job and that's what they have to do. And their mother and their father make them or that they somehow have this sense that God will be happy if they show up. The prophet Jeremiah was ordered to position himself at the gate or the entryway into the Lord's temple and preach to the people who were coming in to worship the Lord. And in the time of Jeremiah... Solomon's temple had six gates. Three gates would enter into the outer court. 
there were three additional gates that marked the inner court. And at the last gate of the inner court, there was the high altar. And there was the temple proper. And it was in this place, perhaps, that Jeremiah positioned him. We're not told which gate that he was positioned at. But there's something probably at least equally important for you to know. Remember, the temple was the place where the people went to hear the word of the Lord and to offer the sacrifices. Now, why is this important to you? Because there are times in our lives where we want to be open and willing to listen to God. And I got to remind you of something. Is God willing to speak with you when you're in your car driving down the road? Yeah. Is he willing not to distract you? He's willing to speak with you, but all the while he wants you to be safe. Yes. Is the Lord willing to speak with you in your home, on your job, with your family? In other words, is the Lord willing to speak to you all the time? Yeah. But when you come to church or when you come to a place of worship, when you come to a place of thoughtful, considered prayer where you go, I'm going to go to church and I am going to sit in that chair. I'm going to pray to God and I want to hear God's voice. You would think that it is in the worship service where you are preparing your mind and you're preparing your heart to hear from God. And this is important because Jeremiah's message isn't three P's and a promise. It's four scathing indictments. You worship, your worship does you no good, verses 1 through 15. Your prayers do you no good, verses 16 through 20. Your sacrifices, no good, verses 21 through 26. Discipline and correction of God, it's not doing you any good, chapter 7, verse 27, all the way to verses 8 through 3. You mean all of this religious activity isn't helping? No. You can go to church every single day. You can pray every single day. You can do religious things every single day. But if your heart is far from God, he's going to know about it. So Jeremiah calls the people to consider and to think and to listen. Look what it says even in the text. All you of Judah who enter in these gates to worship the Lord. You know what Jeremiah is going to do in this passage as we continue studying through chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9? He's going to ask and answer the question, what is Worship. What constitutes true worship? And so Jeremiah is going to remind the people that worship is more than ritual, more than ceremony, more than religious activity. Worship is having a heart and a mind that is willing to submit and listen. And respond to the true and living God. Worship isn't simply religious activities, but it is a mind 
and a heart that is dedicated to glorifying, honoring God. And so in verse 3, he says, repair and restore your relationship with God. Look at verse 3. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts. And remember, whenever the Bible uses that title for God, the Lord of hosts, it speaks of his power. It speaks of his majesty. It speaks of his sovereignty. It speaks of his ability to order and orchestrate all things that are going on in the world. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. So what is Jeremiah's message? What's been his message since chapter two? I need you to repent. Remember, I keep telling you that Jeremiah in all 50 chapters, he's basically saying, a new and creative ways to turn from your sin and to turn to God. His message is repent. It's the only way the people will be allowed to stay in the land of promise. What's his message? Repair and restore your relationship with God and with others. By the way, that's the root meaning of the word amend. In the Hebrew language, we have a we have a, a, a way of putting it to, to, make, to be well or to be made well. Typically, when we use the term to make amends, some of you are going to be very familiar with that term. You understand that it means to make right something that's broken, to restore something that has been cut off. All is not well in Judah and Jerusalem. And so the prophet is basically saying, hey, everything's not well here in Judah and everything's not well in Jerusalem. Important changes to be, need to be made. And by the way, the word way means a consistent and settled way of doing things. Ways refer to a pattern of conduct and the word doings is a reference to the individual acts of specific people in relationship to God. He's, he's basically saying, I'm not just specifically talking about you corporately, but I'm also talking about you as a family, and I'm clearly talking about you as an individuals. Haggai, the prophet, would put it this way in chapter 1, verses 5 and, and verse 7. He would say, consider... Your ways. It's the Old Testament way of saying, I need you to think about what you're doing. That's pretty simple, isn't it? I need you to think about what you're doing. And so that's part of Jeremiah's message. Not only to repent and restore, but I need you to pause for a moment and I need you to think about what you're doing. And by the way, when you do that, when you pause for a moment and you do a self inventory and you ask and answer the question, am I well? How am I doing? How am I doing in my thought life? How am I doing in my heart life? How am I doing in my relationship with my wife and my children? How am I doing on the job? How am I doing at school? How am I doing when I think about what God has called me to be and what God has called me to do is everything well. 
in your life. And so in verse four, Jeremiah says, do not trust in these lying words saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. This verse might be difficult for you, but let me help you understand what is being said. Jeremiah's other message includes refuse the lies of the false prophets. They must not trust the false prophets lying words. And what what seems to be the theme of the false prophets message? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What Jeremiah is doing is he's emphasizing the message of the false prophets. And the basic bottom line of the false prophets message is you're Jews. You live in Judea and Jerusalem. Here in Jerusalem is God's home. This is the temple. This is the place where God is glorified, honored. This temple is a tribute to his magnificence and his sovereignty. And so the people were hearing a message. You're fine because you're Jews and you're fine because you're living in Jerusalem and you're fine because you have the temple. And so long as we have the temple, we're going to be fine. The false prophets had lulled them into a false sense of peace and prosperity and security and acceptance. The false prophets believed that greed was gain, that wealth was a sign of prosperity, and that the temple of the Lord meant that his sacred eyes were on Jerusalem and that God couldn't possibly allow the pagan armies to overrun and destroy his temple. Their way of thinking was God can't let anything bad happen to his temple. Why do you think that's important? Again, if you're a person who believes in superstitious religion, if you're a person who believes... I'm safe in the church. I'm safe in front of the statue. I'm safe if I have a candle. I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm safe. Then you're in trouble. God wouldn't allow something bad to happen to the temple. Guess what? The people forgot that the temple was already defiled. The temple had already been desecrated. Because of their wicked hearts. And their worthless worship. Jeremiah positions himself at the gate in the shadow of the temple to remind the people that false religion and temple offers no security to those whose character and conduct are unacceptable to God. And you know what that means? Coming to church and reading your Bible won't offer you any safety or security If in your heart, you're planning on dishonoring and disobeying God. Do you understand what was happening? The people began to see the temple like a good luck charm. I had a friend who was in Vietnam and he talked about having a cross and he talked about having a crescent and he talked about having a statue of Buddha. He was wearing all of them and he said, I can't afford to offend anyone at this point. What? That the object, like a lucky charm or a superstitious charm, will somehow protect you. By the way, the Lord did promise David, if your sons keep my covenant, 
Their sons also forever shall sit upon your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. This is my resting place forever. It says in Psalm 132 verses 12 and 13 and 14. But Ephraim forgot the promise was conditional. If and David's son didn't keep God's covenant. The people thought Jerusalem was impregnable. And the presence of the temple guaranteed security and safety from their enemies or against any disaster. You know what they were actually thinking? God wouldn't let something bad happen to us. And so in verse 5, he says, For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor. So what was Jeremiah's message? Reform, remodel, Reorganize, change your mind, change your behavior. The people have to listen to God, obey God, treat people fairly. Don't oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, the widows. The Lord says, I need you to experience a genuine transformation and reformation. The Lord wanted the people To change their mind and then change their heart and then change their conduct with the people who are around them. Now, this isn't social justice absent God or absent personal change. The expression thoroughly is much stronger in the original language. We might even read this. If amending you amend your ways. The reason why the translators didn't do that is because it it doesn't translate properly in in the way that we communicate with one another. But in the original language, it basically says. If amending, you amend your ways, if executing, you execute judgment. The idea is that you reinforce and that you really do it. Not that you just talk about it, not that you just say it, not that you just hope for it. In verse 6, it says, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, if you do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt. Listen to the laundry list. Don't murder. Don't follow false gods or worship idols. And by the way, when it says, if you do not oppress the stranger, the Bible pays close attention to the plight of strangers and aliens or foreigners. In the Old Testament, there is a specific attention to this. By the way, other religions and systems of social philosophy and social justice really didn't do that. They would pay close attention to family loyalty and family fidelity, but they would ignore the outsider. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, where he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Jesus is basically saying, Everyone, even sinners, know it's a good idea to love your family and to take care of your family. It's to take care of the people that God has entrusted to you. But concern for the alien, concern for the stranger, 
is repeated in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, Exodus chapter 23, verse 9, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 17 through 22. In other words, over and over again in biblical Judaism and in historical Christianity, the man of faith, the person, the man or the woman who loves the Lord God understands something. That you're not just simply kind to the people who are like you, who talk like you, who embrace your culture. The man of faith, the woman of faith cares for the alien. And listen carefully, not because they belong to the same tribe, not because they share the same ties of language or culture or faith. And this is a radical concept that Judaism and the Lord brings to the forefront. It is the Lord himself who basically creates this image that because human beings are created in the image of God, because they're loved by God, because they're treasured by God, you take care of them. Well, what are they going to give to me? They may not give you anything. Well, my expectation is that they're going to change and that they're going to come to Christ. You know what? When you present someone with the gospel and when you present the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, many will come to Christ. But some won't. I was talking to my friend KP on the radio the other day, and he was talking about the ministry of Bridges of Hope in in India and how one particular brother was working in a slum in Bombay, and he managed to gather 6,000 children together out of the streets in the slums. And KP said, how many of these children have accepted the Lord? And the brother said, or 6,000. He goes, what? He goes, yes, when we present the gospel to children and we tell them about the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God, their hearts are open and eager to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You you know what? It takes maturity, sensibility, careful thought to dishonor God and reject God and to say there's no God to love. By the way, it is in the care of the stranger and it is in the care of the alien that the concept of humanity was born. This is the origin of it's not just about you and it's not just about us. It's about everyone. Care for the helpless And the hurting is at the heart of biblical Judaism and biblical Christianity. And so the Lord talks about the fatherless, the widow. And by the way, the verse gives a threefold division of man's duty in which the weak stand first before the shedding of blood or even of idolatry. The shedding of innocent blood probably refers to child sacrifice in the ancient valleys to Molech. In the ancient world, it's talking about unfairly, improperly taking the life of those who are innocent. Now, think about the point that is being made. The Lord is basically saying, I need you to change your mind and I need you to change your heart and I need you to change your behavior towards those who are weak and vulnerable. And so... He talks about murder, 
and the miscarriage of justice. But look at the expression to your own hurt. Do you know why the Lord adds that? That injustice, idolatry, murder doesn't hurt God. It hurts you. And it hurts me. I know that in, a, in, in some syrupy kinds of theological ways of thinking, some people might think, well, you know, that grieves the heart of God. And yet we know that the heart of God is grieved and we know that the Holy Spirit is grieved and we know that God cares and God cares on a regular basis. But guess what? There's no single sin ever committed by any single person that diminishes God in any way. Do you realize that you're incapable of making God less holy, less righteous, less compassionate, less loving? There is nothing that you can say and there is nothing that you can do to, to make God different than, from, from who he is. So guess who does get hurt? Who gets hurt when we embrace sin? We get hurt. Who gets hurt? When we neglect, ignore, or otherwise painfully create circumstances where we dishonor and we displease the Lord, we're the ones who get hurt. That's why he's saying this, this is for your own hurt. And so in verse 7 it says, Then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. It's this, it's that hypothetical syllogism. If you'll do this, verse seven, then I will cause you to dwell in this place. Scholars are torn whether or not Jeremiah is making a reference to the temple and Jerusalem or he's talking about Judea and he's talking about the land of promise as a whole. I suspect that when he says, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. He's talking about a restoration to wholeness and wellness because a radical change of mind and a radical change of heart and a radical change of behavior can take place. You see, for the person who believes that God is mostly terrifying, Mostly judgment, mostly angry. You missed the whole point. God isn't mostly angry and mostly filled with anger and judgment. God is mostly filled with compassion and love. And mercy over and over again, if you read both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll remember when when Moses said, look, I just want to meet you. I just want to see you. I just want to know who you are. He says, come here. I'm going to place you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to cover you with my hand. And then I'm going to go in backwards in, in the hinder parts. And it says, this is who I am. I am the merciful God, loving and compassionate, um, willing to forgive those who will come to me and and willing to judge the sinner. But the overarching emphasis is I am loving and compassionate and merciful and willing to extend my love and my compassion to you. That's the whole point. And in verse eight, it says, behold. You trust in lying words that cannot profit. 
The prophet is basically repeating the words of verse 7, but with a slight difference. In verse 4, it's a negative imperative. But now the statement is made as a matter of fact. Here's what he's basically saying. Listen carefully. Instead of listening to the prophets and instead of listening to me and instead of listening to the word of God. You trust lies. Or you believe lies. Or you have confidence in lies. And these lies have no benefit. What is the lie? We're fine. The judgment is coming. God isn't going to do anything and punish us. I know, I didn't order the sound effects. That's part of the point. You believe lies. And the lies have no benefit. Do you realize that whenever you believe a lie, it has no benefit whatsoever? The moment that you hear rehearsed in your mind the lie, God doesn't care about you. God is angry and upset with you. God isn't willing to forgive you. God hopes he can't wait for you to rot in hell. But the Bible says, no, it's God's will that none perish. That all have eternal life. The Bible says that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through Jesus the world might be saved. The moment that you hear the voice whisper, my life doesn't matter, my ministry doesn't matter, my circumstances don't matter, God doesn't see what's going on in my life, God doesn't see what's going on in my heart, and clearly God doesn't care then you're believing the lie. The lies have no benefit. These people continue to believe the lie. I am a Jew. I am a religious Jew. I am a religious Jew who observes the feasts and the festivals. So long as I observe religion, I will be found fine. And then look what it says in verse nine. Will you steal? Will you murder? Commit adultery? Swear falsely? Burn incense to Baal? Walk after other gods whom you do not know? In verse nine, the question comes in the form of an accusation. Will Ephraim here, the Jewish people? Persist in the sins that have been mentioned in the previous chapters. Will you persist in sin? The Hebrew verbs are in the infinitive. Um, for those of you who understand language, it more literally reads what? The infinitive to steal. It, it, it literally says in the text, what? To steal? To murder? To commit adultery, to swear falsely, to burn incense, to bail the idea of offering sacrifice and prayers to the weather god, the climatological god. It's to the God who brought the rain, which in turn brought the crops growth, which in turn brought the future. And so the idea was, no. There are supernatural powers that bring the rain. There are supernatural powers that, that fertilize the soil. There are supernatural powers that yield the grain and walk after other gods whom you have not known. And because it's that way, the implication is carried over from the previous verse. You're trusting the lying words that cannot profit. What? For what reason? So that you can continue to steal, so that you can continue to murder, to commit adultery, to swear falsely. 
In, a, in effect, he's saying, do the math. Between verses 6 and verse 9, Jeremiah has labeled five of the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. He is addressing the issue that comes up from time to time. It doesn't really matter. If God is a loving God and a compassionate God, and if God is going to forgive me anyway, what does it matter if I murder or steal or lie or commit adultery or swear falsely or burn incense to foreign gods? What does it matter? And here's the key concept. This is not biblical faith. This is raw superstition. Religious Objects become talismans to protect you from harm, and at the very, as if the very possession of these religious things will protect you from harm. And so here's the idea: the false prophets assured the temple because they're Jews and because of the presence of the temple of God in Jerusalem, guaranteeing them blessing and protection from their enemies and freedom from judgment. It didn't really matter what they did. Same is true today. That's called cheap grace. There are some people who think, well, if God loves me and if Jesus died for me, then it doesn't really matter what I do. No, it matters greatly. Jeremiah is going to expose their superstition and shatter their silly theology that says religion saves but religion doesn't save does it god saves doesn't he it's god who forgives and jesus who forgives and that's why we place such an emphasis on that edmund burke said superstition is the religion of the feeble minds in what world can you justify theft and murder and adultery and hypocrisy and idolatry and the worship of great of the Savior, the great God, Jehovah. In other words, these were people who said, I'm a Jew and I worship the great God and Savior, but I'm also okay with theft and murder and adultery and hypocrisy and idolatry. And then in verse 10, it says, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. This is Jeremiah's way of saying, should sin abound so that grace can so much more abound? It's his way of saying, in what world and in what religion did you come to the conclusion that God established Judaism and established the temple and established the sacrifices so that I could sin Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday? And again, the question is from the previous verse. The people who had sinned, they come to the temple. They imagine that their presence at the temple gave them free reign to continue to sin. And part of the Reformation was prompted by something similar. In the 15th century, there was a huge debate that erupted. Because the Roman Catholic Church started selling what was called indulgences. If you've ever seen the movie Luther... It painfully portrays the reality of what it was like to live in a world where you could purchase forgiveness for your sins. By the way, can you? 
Can you pay a priest and say, hey, I want the murder and the adultery. I want the sin and the circumstances of my life to go away. If I give you five dollars, if I give you a hundred dollars, if I give you a thousand dollars, can you make my sin go away? And what do you think the answer is? Can you purchase your forgiveness? No. There's only one person who can purchase your forgiveness. That's the person of Jesus Christ. Think about that. You want forgiveness? God is willing to pay. He pays in the form of the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus. Jesus, his sacrifice, purchases redemption and reconciliation. And so both Jeremiah and Luther knew that it was God who forgives sin on the basis of God's provision. And that provision is in what God has pointed to. A Messiah. Jesus. It's God who forgives sin on the basis of repentance from sin and unbelief and then trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. Religion grows like a weed and righteousness languishes under the false idea that righteousness and godliness is legalism. But all the while, God wonders about the person who seems so content with superstition and religion. And the moment he says that expression, called by my name. If the verse sounds familiar, it should be. And then come and stand before me in verse 10. In this house, which is called by my name. The house is the temple. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, put my name there. Do you understand what that means? His name, Jehovah. I am that I am. It is not just simply a title. It's an attribute of his identity and his character. It's in effect saying the temple put my name there. It's interesting to me. A.W. Tozer wrote. I can offer no worship wholly pleasing to God if I know that I'm harboring elements in my life that are displeasing to him. I cannot truly and joyfully worship God on Sunday and not worship him on Monday, unquote. In other words, he was saying that whatever true worship includes and embraces, it's honoring, it's pleasing, it's declaring to God his grace, his mercy, his majesty, his love. Paul writes about it in Romans when he says, should we sin so that grace can abound? He says, heaven forbid. Jonathan Edwards wrote, the more a Christian hates sin, the more he desires to hate it. The idea being. When you understand the righteousness of God, when you understand the holiness of God, when you understand the sinfulness of human beings. There is a revulsion that begins to fill your heart. Every parent experiences it at one time in their life, particularly when their baby is born. The baby is born and here is this weak, vulnerable, innocent person 
and you want to protect them. You want to mask the pain and the horror and the heartache. It's okay for you to ask the question, do you love sin or do you hate it? I think all of you know the right answer. The right answer is my flesh loves it. And my spirit hates it. This is what Paul meant in Romans chapter 6 when he says that, that there is this war that's taking place in my body. In Galatians chapter 5 it talks about there's a war between the flesh and the spirit. They're constantly at odds with one another. They're constantly at war with one another. One's always trying to take control of the other. And so, he says, Spurgeon, quote, We cannot bear sin when it is near us. We feel like the wretch chained to a rotting carcass. We groan to be free from the hateful thing. He's talking about Romans chapter 6 when Paul writes, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He was making a reference to the Roman practice that when a person was caught in the act of murder, they would take the dead body of the victim and they would chain it to the person who committed the crime until the corpse began to decompose on their back. Yeah, you thought Stephen King was wicked. Can you imagine if that's what they did today? You commit murder and they find the body and instead of putting it on a slab on CSI, they chain it to you until the flesh decomposes and rots as you begin to stumble under the weight of the horror as you groan to be free from the wretched thing. And in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11, has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. Sound familiar to you? It should. Jesus quotes that passage in part in Matthew chapter 21 verse 13. Do you remember when he's overturning the money changers, when he's when the temple is filled with people who are trying to make merchandise of God and God's people in Matthew 21, 13? It says, Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. Once again, Jesus quotes the prophet Jeremiah. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7. And Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, he combines the two concepts. Jesus emphasizes robber. Jeremiah emphasizes den. You know what a den is. The den is the place where thieves go after they've committed their dastardly deeds. The, the den is the place where everybody goes after they've committed the crimes. <laughs> Warren Wiersbe writes, a den of robbers is the place where thieves go to hide after they've committed their crimes. Thus, Jeremiah was declaring that the Jews were using the temple ceremonies to cover up their secret sins. Instead of being made holy in the temple, the people were making the temple unholy. 
A century earlier, Isaiah had preached the same message. Isaiah chapter 1. Much later, Paul wrote a similar warning to the Christians in his day. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Any theology that minimizes God's holiness and tolerates people's sin, deliberate sinfulness, is a false theology. Unquote. I need to repeat that last part. Any theology that minimizes God's holiness and tolerates people's deliberate sinfulness is a false theology, unquote. In the book of Amos, chapter five, the Lord said, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. The prophet said, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. You know what they all have in common? I'm not impressed with religion. This is what impresses me. Your heart focused on the true righteousness, the true glory, the true loveliness, the true sensibility, the true mercy, the true grace of God. Your heart fixed on his love and fixed on his grace and fixed on his mercy. Your heart that is so transformed that now you're willing to consider helping others. When Isaiah preached The most powerful nation on the earth threatened Jerusalem, but God defeated the armies of Sennacherib in a single night. And so a century later, because of the miracle of the preservation of Jerusalem, the people said, God spared the city because Isaiah prayed. And certainly he'll spare the city again. Certainly he won't let anything bad happen. To our country, to our city, to our church. Jeremiah tried and failed to convince the people that true safety and true security and godly assurance comes from being totally committed to the Lordship of God. False religion, superstitious religion, can never serve as a substitute for biblical faith. That's why the prophet wrote, the just shall live by faith. Those who are truly justified before God will say loudly and repeatedly, My forgiveness and my hope and my transformation rests in what Jesus has done. True faith involves real trust and real obedience in the true and living God. In the book of Deuteronomy, God spelled it out to his people. If you forget the Lord your God, you shall surely perish. 
He didn't say if you stop going to church, if you stop reading your Bible, if you stop religious activities. He said, if you forget me. Once again, Jeremiah calls the people to repent. Why? So that they can avoid the awful consequences to their character, to their worship. But also because in the northern part of the country, you can hear the storm growing. The cloud is gathering. The darkness is assembling. The Lord's covenant with the Jewish people included blessing and curse, prosperity and adversity. Blessing if they obeyed, judgment if they didn't. The Jewish people were reminded over and over and over and over again. But here's the choice that they made. The choice was we will continue in personal sin. And we will reject God's warning. So what happens when people trust a building? When they trust a statue? When they trust religion? When they trust ritual? Instead of trusting God. By the way, the people would come to the temple and they say, we're delivered. They would show up in the temple and they would offer the sacrifice and they would say, I'm fine again. Sometimes Christians do exactly the same thing. They show up to church. They confess their sin. And one of two things happens. They really, really do repent and in their heart want to change and want to turn and want to allow the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to come into their heart and transform them. And then there are other people who confess their sin. And whether it's on Sunday or on Wednesday, they're still in another part of their mind contemplating the sin that they're going to commit on Friday. They're rehearsing in their mind the person that they're going to meet. They're rehearsing in their mind the things that they're going to do. They're rehearsing in the mind the drugs that they're going to take. They're rehearsing in their mind the sinful circumstances that they're going to embrace. They're rehearsing in their mind when they can be with that person and when they can do that thing. And real repentance can't mean saying you're sorry for what you've done and then trying to figure out a way how you can make it happen again as soon as possible. By the way, in the next section, the Lord will point to Shiloh. And Shiloh is once the most sacred place for the Jewish people. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. But in a critical battle between the Philistines, they brought out the Ark of the Covenant as a talisman, as a good luck charm to defeat their enemies, only to watch themselves be defeated and the Ark captured and the sanctuary of Shiloh was destroyed. God warned that he'll do exactly the same thing again to the temple, what he did in Shiloh and to the people of Jerusalem. If they wouldn't wake 
up. You know what's wonderful? God doesn't give you one chance or two chances or three chances. Sometimes God gives you lots and lots and lots of chances. The Bible says he hasn't dealt with us according to our sin or rewarded us according to our iniquity. But he has lavished his grace and his mercy. As my friend Joel Rosenberg is fond of saying, the clock is ticking and it appears that Jesus is on his way. You can't afford to be living a life of rebellion and disobedience at this time. If ever there was a time in your life to know him and to love him and to walk with him, it's now. We're going to have communion in just a few moments. And what I want you to do is um, we're going to hand out the elements. We're going to pass out the elements. What I want you to do is just hold on till we all have an opportunity to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that justice and judgment has been satisfied in the cross of Calvary. That our Heavenly Father, you, Lord, are completely satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. That the death of Jesus on the cross can take care of each and every sin forever and ever. That Jesus endured our punishment. Lord, we remember what the prophet wrote, that he was bruised for our sin. He was stricken for our iniquity and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed, we're made whole. That, Lord, if we're going to make amends, if we're going to make things right, if we are going to make things right with you, the only way that that's going to happen is if we're willing to confess our sin and our need for a Savior and that Jesus is the solution to that sin. That his sacrifice and his love and his death serves as payment. And full. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, that, Lord, again, we would prepare our hearts to hear what the Spirit is saying. To do an inventory. To evaluate our hearts. As the psalmist said, search me, O God, and try my soul. Try me and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me, lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, I pray that you would take them by the hand and escort them out of that dark place and into a place that is brightly lit. Out of that guilty place and into a place of forgiveness and hope. Out of that place of doubt and skepticism, pain and hurt. And into a place of full forgiveness in, in Jesus. And for the person, Lord, who has never known you, Lord, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer of faith. That I know that Jesus loves me and that he died on the cross. And that he rose from the dead. That I know that I'm a sinner and that I want to experience forgiveness of my sin and a right relationship with you. And Heavenly Father, for that man or that woman who 
has stumbled and fallen. For the person who finds themselves in a dark and desperate pit. But they want so much to come back to you. To make amends. Lord, I pray that even now that they would confess their sin and their willingness to turn from it and to turn to you and to allow the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to fill us with the strength and assurance necessary to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to you. Lord, we know that apart from Christ and apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit, none of us are able to please you. And so, Heavenly Father, we trust you. We trust the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. We trust the sacrifice of Jesus, his shed blood. And we believe that there is hope and life, forgiveness and a future for everyone who trusts in you. That, Lord, if we'll trust in you, we won't be ashamed. And on the day of judgment, we'll find ourselves safe in the arms of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.